What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, 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 flamethrowers. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State. And I'm joined today with the fabulous and phenomenal co-host that I have, Brenda Elsie, checking in from Argentina, who's the Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University. And Jessica Luther, who's a freelance journalist in Austin, Texas. Welcome, ladies. Good morning. Hello. I would like to take this time to remind our flamethrowers out there about our Patreon campaign. How it works is you pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 or as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to exclusive content. Over the Olympics, for instance, we did hot takes on everything that was happening in the Olympic Games. We also have exclusive interviews there, giveaways. It's definitely the place you want to be. If you want to join up for our Patreon campaign, you can go directly to Patreon, www.patreon.com slash burn it all down, or you can go to our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com and navigate to Patreon from there. So this week on the episode, we're going to talk athlete moms. We're also going to discuss Kaepernick continuing to be out of the NFL and the various league responses to protests and give an update in that regard. Plus, Jess interviews Molly Yanity, who's an assistant professor of journalism at Quinnipiac College about sports media and women's sports coverage. But before we start, in the throes of March Madness, guys, can I tell you something that's just really grinding my gears because I don't understand? I saw a tweet when they were talking about UConn scoring 140 points, and the first comment was like, tell me when they make 140 sandwiches, and I just... I don't understand what like that's not even funny it's not even original and then all the people who were like this is why nobody watches women's basketball why do you even have a tournament just give UConn the crown and I was like but they didn't even win last year like it it literally like I understand misogyny like I get that I get patriarchy I just cannot comprehend trolls like I don't get why? Yeah, their like, deep investment, their deep investment in telling us how much they don't care is always fascinating to me. Like, if you didn't care, then just shut up. <laughs> like, move <laughs> exactly. on. But it's it's, so, they enjoy like, it. I just don't understand but it. I think there's a pleasure in being able to tell women that they're less than and they enjoy yeah, it. I, absolutely. I think it's like the kid on the back of the bus. You know, none of those guys are knocking down three pointers for some, you know, great division one school they're sitting on the couch um, hating on women so but it's so clear they enjoy it they love the discussion of and i've had this in the classroom sadly sometimes too the enjoyment of discussing how women's sports are never going to be as good and then they're like okay so take marta she would never be neymar like that's a productive conversation right and and they're just exactly And it like, and part of it is this focus on that one game that UConn played, which was round one anyway, is just, it means that no one, there's so much more basketball (laughs) that was happening. And so much competitive basketball, good basketball. We just had two number 11s make it into the Sweet 16 for women's basketball. I mean, the idea that they don't also have this kind of parody is so, oh, I don't know. It just makes me so angry the way that that's the intense focus when there's just so much going on. Other than totally. that, that is exactly. so good. Totally. It's so good. Yeah. And there's nuns. And it was it, precisely. <laughs> and it was just, and I feel that there's a certain thing that March Madness brings out. Like, this yes. is obviously a 365 situation, but March Madness in particular seems to bring out the worst of it. And, you know, when uh, UMBC was making their run and their, their official Twitter handle, 
took the time to say, hey, while you're doing all your hot takes, remember we're not the first 16 seed in the NCAA postseason tournament to upset a number one seed. That was actually Harvard's women's basketball 20 years ago. So if you're talking about us, make sure you just say the first 16 seed on the men's side. And the backlash to that tweet, and they started retweeting things like, I can't believe it's affecting you that much to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's so easy to acknowledge that it's not the first. Like, what? I know. Yeah, Man. the rampant sexism that comes out in March Madness is just stunning. It really is. And unsurprising. Is. Stunning and unsurprising. So, <laughs> Indeed. All right. So Serena Williams is returning to tennis. In the last few weeks, we've had the wonderful chance of seeing her play again. You might remember that when she left tennis to have her beautiful baby girl, she left ranked as the world's number one. As she's returned to tennis, she's returned unseated. So in the last week, in particular, because of the draws that she's gotten as an unseated entrant, entrant entrant into these tournaments she uh has been facing stiff competition from the start she met her sister in the third round at indian wells she just this past week drew naomi osaka very early and ultimately lost to her and so it has sparked conversation about the way the wta welcomes women back following childbirth and if there is a disadvantage and if it is unfair, if there's essentially needs to be a revision for what essentially is their maternity leave policy. So Jess, I know I consider you the president of Serena's Texas branch of her <laughs> fan club. Fair. Uh, so let me ask you, <laughs> do you think this is an issue about maternity leave? Yeah, it absolutely is. And can I just back up for one second to say how stunning it is that you just read a sentence that Venus and Serena played at Indian Wells together? That's an amazing thing that I, I hadn't know, really, I I hadn't really put that together until because of the history of racism that the two sisters faced many years ago. Whoever knew that we'd see that again? But yeah, it's definitely a maternity leave issue. They they treat maternity leave as if it's an injury. And so the idea is that once you go away, you come back, you do have a protected ranking, which means that you get eight opportunities in that year to enter into a tournament that uses seating. I guess they all do. And you're guaranteed that you'll get in, but you won't get a, a seating spot. I, I guess there's some like Wimbledon could, in theory, seed Serena, despite whatever her ranking is. But she's currently ranked 451 in the world. So she is allowed to play in these tournaments, that these eight tournaments, but she doesn't get what the advantage that you get when you're seated the way that you actually should be. So like you said, she ends up playing very good people in the early rounds of tournaments. And that's unfair to both her and the people she's playing, right? I mean, like, if you're number one, and you have to face Serena Williams, that's not really fair to you either. Like part of what you earn with your number one ranking is that you don't have to play people like that that good early on. And Yeah, we also have Vika Victoria Azarenka, who recently came back. I can't remember what she was ranked when she left, but she is facing the same thing. She was gone from maternity leave. And, you know, the idea is that that's just who's going to take maternity leave if that's what they're risking, right? It's not an injury. It's not bad luck (laughs) that happens to you or something like that. And I do think the WTA is going to have to figure this out. Last year, um, Azarenka has had custody a custody battle with the father of her baby. So she hasn't been playing as much as she wanted to. But last year when she was on the circuit in 2017, she also addressed that the WTA doesn't have the same stuff in place that the ATP for the men does. Like the men have nurseries and the women don't. So the WTA has issues. Yeah, yeah. The WTA has issues with parenting in general. And they're going to have to figure this out. And it's just come to the fore because the most famous player ever is, is now a mother. Right. That's baffling. Why would they have no, what? That makes no. Okay, I know, I know. She, I, I it was think back it might be Roger Federer, right? Wasn't it like a group of these men that got together yes. to ask for it? Yeah, I'm I try, do think. I think there was something like that, and I mean, part of it. The reason you're thinking of Federer is that she was asked 
if Federer's success, Alzarenka was asked last July if Federer's success while being a father is a success to her or is an inspiration to her. And Alzarenka said, quote, Roger definitely has not inspired me. No disrespect to him. And I think it's amazing, you know, but it's a little different for him. So he de- he definitely was wrapped into all of this because he has twins. Is there another baby? Anyway, so, you yeah. definitely. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely fathers on the circuit that don't you know, we, we live in a gendered world and a sexist world. And even the most famous of women will probably end up doing a lot of the child care in, the, in their relationship, because that's often how it works. And it's and it's hard, right? I, I definitely want to one thing I'd like to talk about with you guys that I think a lot about is that pregnancy is definitely a physical thing. And playing a sport is definitely a physical thing. And bodies change. And I do and I sort of <laughs> I don't know how to have that conversation to like both acknowledge that it does have an impact on you physically, but also that women shouldn't be punished for that either. And I, and I struggle with that sort of that space. Part of the reason I think it's tough to have that conversation is there's simply not a lot of research on elite women athletes and pregnancy, you know, because of these obstacles to them doing it, there's just not much research in terms of how their metabolism changes, how their skeletal frame changes, how it changes uh, hormones in the long term in, in relation to their athletics. There's tons about pregnancy. But when you go and try to read, I read one article in the uh, British Medical Journal because I'm part of my book has something to do with physical education there and, and pregnancy, and there's no research out there. And I read this article in the British Journal of Medicine, which is really hard, and I understood like 20%. But what I did understand, <laughs> what, what I did understand was over and over again, they kept saying, we simply don't know enough to say. So they were trying to look at the IOC and make recommendations about elite women athletes and pregnancy, and they couldn't do it. So I I got enough to know that there's just simply not that much research out there, which makes sense because there haven't been that many cases of women because it is so difficult who are able to maintain those two things. Well, it's also beyond being difficult. Historically speaking, you know, one of the things that was understood about athletics was that you, as a woman, you could, you could participate in athletics, but it was very much something you did as a young woman. And so what you see time and time again is that when you get married, when you have kids, that was seen as the end of your career. Now you put away the childish things like being an elite track star or a basketball player, and you settle into your real calling, which is as a housewife or your post-athletic career. And so for the elite athletes who did have kids at an early age or while they were in competition, a lot of them hid them. So Wilma Rudolph had a baby before, a year and a half before she won her three gold medals in Rome. Right. That was a literally hidden child. Wow. Wow. And, you know, the newspaper reporters used to send reporters down to Clarksville, Tennessee to try to catch her with her daughter. And the thing is that her family has 22 kids in it. And so they would come down to the house and there'd be kids everywhere and a huge family. So they could never do it. But, you know, she had a kid that we, you know, even at the time didn't really remember. And, you know, I would talk when I talked to Coach Temple before he passed away and I was saying, I was asking, he he told me what Wilma didn't come on one of the trips they made. She's like, oh yeah, she had the flu. And I said, well, Coach, I know she was pregnant, but that he had gotten so used to being like, oh, she has the flu because there was this veil, you know, a secrecy around her pregnancy. And she was certainly not the only one. And so I think that when we're considering the the way that it's taken a long time for us to have conversations or to get the research around elite women athletes having kids is because for so long, having kids or or choosing to settle down has been seen as, uh, you know, retirement. And that's when it's over. And I think that, you know, you see a lot of articles popping up about the soccer moms as women in the U.S. national team began to have kids and bringing them around the team and so forth. Um, And as athletes like Serena continue to play uh, longer, as we have sports technology that helps people sustain their bodies longer and stay in the game, as we open up professional opportunities for women so that they don't have to be done after college, right? This is going to continue to be a conversation because more and more people are going to want to merge their family life with their careers. And especially when we're talking about professional women, they're juggling the same thing that professional women are juggling everywhere. 
it seems like in many cases suffering the same kind of baby tax, if you will, that professional women are across the board. Yeah. Can I just mention very quickly that the WNBA has a lot of moms or more than we normally see. And like I, there was a player, Derricka Hamby, I want to say at the, in San Antonio last year who would breastfeed before she would come play basketball, which I just found just the things that moms are doing are, are remarkable. And yeah, it would be amazing if we had a lot more data and understanding of what all that means. Certainly, you know, professional moms are not the only athletic moms out there. Brenda? Well, yeah. I, I mean, the student athlete moms are another segment of the population. Single student mothers are the largest growing group of university students. And one of the things that's difficult, of course, is that even professors can't get their kids into university daycare. You know, mm-hmm. how on right, earth can right. any students do it? And like you said, nursing, I mean, I had an office. I could cover my window in my door and tell people to go away. But if you're a student athlete and you're, what are you, how is that working? So there's a, a whole lot of obstacles to that. And the thing is that as pro leagues grow, like the NWSL now, you know, it had a big draft recently. And that's going to be an issue because if these women aren't able to finish their college careers, then if there's this pipeline into the NWSL, it becomes hard for them to get, you know, to have the same opportunities to go pro as well. And I think, Brenda, one of the things that you touched on so much or so pointedly was access to things as college students. I was a, a, a student parent in college. And even as a grad student, when I was a student parent twice over, you know, it wasn't even like I could, I actually was barred from having access to the campus lactation rooms. Wow. Um, because you're not faculty. And so there's a huge, there's huge issues with how universities help student parents in general. And then you compound that with student athletes who are, you know, in exploitative systems and, and have a lot on their plate, both as students and as athletes and a lack of resources. If you guys remember a few, maybe like a couple months ago, one of, uh, for our best of episodes, I highlighted a young woman from Iowa who had graduated. She was a track star and she was a young mom. And I think that one of the things there is her articulation of how much support and how many resources she had and resources come in many ways. So it's not just, you know, access to lactation rooms, but it's healthcare. You know, is there uh, ability for student parents and, and student athletes to have access to comprehensive healthcare? Do you have a support system? And so I think it's such a necessary conversation for, for many, many reasons. And can I just add very quickly that one of the things that we very rarely talk about with Title IX is that, you know, the access to education, your civil rights, one of the groups that falls under that are, are pregnant and mothering women, right? And we often hear about it on the high school level, but like it applies on college as well. Like universities need to be making sure that moms and pregnant women and pregnant people can access their education the same as everyone else. So it's also a legal issue and a civil rights issue. Precisely. Before we wrap up the discussion, I just want to circle back to Serena on another note, which is, you know, did you see, did you guys see these reports that people estimate that now that Serena's a mom, she stands to actually make more in endorsements. That's so fascinating. It's fascinating. Which is fascinating. And for me, it was like immediately struck me as like, oh, of course, because of racist stereotypes, you know, and tropes that had had basically said that, oh, Serena can't be the spokesperson as somebody who embraces femininity and all this stuff because of all this anxiety around her body and her skin color, et cetera. Now having a baby somehow makes her maternal. It makes her feminine, right? In a way that we know in talking about endorsement deals for women athletes that you have to play up your femininity and your sexuality. And and it, there's a very small box, a, a window that is like a kind of computation that we see women athletes who can fit inside that are the people who yield the most endorsements. It's why for so long, Serena's endorsement numbers were way down compared to people she regularly demolished on the court. So I found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I read that article in Forbes. And one of the things that got me so mad is they said, she's now more likable. Oh, and, and I was like, oh, man, like you've de- what like you're you're trying to sort of, you know, declaw her with her maternity or something. Moms are fierce. Like, look out. You know, I just 
I think I think that that's just sort of a miscalculation on their part. Serena's handling this whole thing with with just total badassery. But they're like, yeah, more likable, more easy to get along with. I thought that was really disturbing. We like you, Serena Williams. We've always liked you. <laughs> and in the words of Brenda, moms are fierce. Great. Next, Jess interviews Molly Yannity. Check it out. I'm so excited today to be joined by Molly Yannity. She's an assistant professor of journalism at Quinnipiac. She writes extensively on the coverage of women's sports and women in sports journalism. She was a sports reporter at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. And tell me if I have this correct, you were an editor for WNBA.com. Yes, right when uh, the league first started. Oh, wow. Good. Okay. So I have Molly here with me today to talk about uh, this media dust up this week, this sort of back and forth discussion about women's basketball. And it started when UConn beat St. Francis 140 to 52 in very UConn fashion. Josh Peter of the USA Today lamented that this domination by UConn is bad for women's basketball because there's never a new idea. David Barry, he responded to Peter with a piece at Forbes Barry pointed out that the competitive balance doesn't actually have a dramatic impact on attendance and and men's sport. That's always the idea that like if women's basketball is more competitive, then people would care more. But then Barry drew attention to some stats and sports media that help explain the problem within women's sports. And so he said about 90% of sports editors are male. It's estimated that only about 10% of sports coverage is created by women. Although 40% of athletes are women, women's sports receive only about 4% of sports coverage. And as Barry noted last November, major internet sites are more likely to cover animals than women's sports. This particular argument upset the big leads managing editor, Jason Lisk, a father of two daughters, who said the problem isn't how dominant men are in sports media, but rather, quote, the truth is that a large segment of the sports consuming public doesn't care about women's sports. You know, rinse, repeat every every March. How did you feel when you saw all of this, Molly? What were you thinking about? When I saw Lisk's piece, the, the first thing that struck me is that this particular man who I've never met, he doesn't know who, uh, his history of women's sports media in the United States. And I say that because there's the Cookie and Messner study that has, over the last 25 years, tracked women's sports coverage in mainstream media. And the way they've done this, though, is they've done it by looking at highlights shows. They actually literally for they record two solid weeks of SportsCenter and of the ABC, CBS, NBC newscasts in Los Angeles and see how much of their sports coverage is devoted to women's sport. So they when they, they started this in 1989 and at the time they found that only 5% of the highlights are devoted to women's sports. That grew to its peak in 1999, when it was almost 9%. And then it has been gradually going down. And now uh, the the last time they did this was 2014. It was 3.2%. So that is even lower than when it started in 89. Two percentage points lower. So, okay, so we've got those baseline numbers established. But then actually, let's go back and think of what has gone on in women's sports since 1989. The 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, that was a watershed moment for women's sports in this country, in the world, honestly. For the U.S. women, this was the moment. The U.S. won gold medals in basketball, softball, beach volleyball, gymnastics, synchronized swimming. The soccer team was incredibly competitive. 99, uh, they win the Brandy Chastain shirt off <laughs> World Cup, right? That's how okay, we all so think of it. Yes. <laughs> it really is. But I mean, and to think, um, honestly, the WNBA came out of that Olympics um, and the um, American Basketball League. There were two leagues that started. And At that same time, you've got to think of local newspapers are covering everything that's going on in their area really well when it came to women's sports. Time Inc. started Sports Illustrated for Women. When Sports Illustrated for Women, actually, that started in 98, and it was really picking up steam in 2000, 2001. They had just done this great big redesign, had all this money put into it, and they gave their big presentation on the redesign on September 8th, 2001. Oh. Three days later, the world changed. When that happened, when 9-11 happened, America got caught up in this, and rightfully so, this patriotic, very hyper-masculine fervor, and things started to change. The U.S. goes to war. 
the economy collapses. When the economy collapses, in, in that study that I had mentioned, between 2004 and 2009, women's coverage on the highlight shows went from 6% to 1.5%. Wow. So we can see in that span that clearly the resources for women's sports, for women's sports coverage dropped. And it dropped dramatically. And the people making those decisions at that time, Mr. Lisk, were men, largely men in major media corporations making these decisions. And it has never really rebounded, even with an up, you know, an upswing in the economy. We've also seen in that time, or I actually should say probably since 2004 to now, newspapers, local newspapers shrink, magazines disappearing. And local newspapers were really the impetus behind a lot of coverage, you know, at the local level. I mean, if a a local newspaper has to fill its pages, it's going to go to the high school volleyball game. These jobs are no longer, and and Lisk did make that point, which I thought was that he was on the money on that. But the resources are gone. The people aren't there to cover it. Those are all the things that have gone into it. And we talk about, I'm going to, I'm kind of going to shift directions here just a little bit. The oh, you know, people don't care about it. That's why we don't cover it. That's like sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Talk about Um, that some. I think that's a huge part of this. We could chicken and egg it and be like, oh, well, we don't cover it. And and nobody cares, but no one covers it because no one cares. But I'm going to throw this one out there. ESPN, do they create a market or do they respond to the market? I have one word to answer that question. Poker. (laughs) <laughs> there was no right. There was no huge demand in this country. There's no big demand in this country for to watch poker on TV. ESPN created that. Yeah, they created it with some really savvy production. Lo and behold, they put this on TV. They make stars of people like Phil Hellmuth and Phil Ivy, and and the next thing you know, people are not only watching poker, they're playing it. It made a difference in that in that market. ESPN created that market. As a massive sports fan and a massive fan of women's sports, I would rather watch. I, I'd rather watch like just about anything than watch poker. Yeah, me too. That's um, like my but, you example, know, the thing I won't watch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the one thing, you know, like every time I see it, I'm like ESPN created this market and I'll be damned. They can't show a, a regular season women's college basketball game, but they can show this for hours. I don't know if you know this, but at the point when ESPN decided to show the X Games, were they like a big yeah. thing? I mean, I feel like ESPN created the um, you know, oh, absolutely. spectacle that goes with the X Games, which of course we've now seen has had a massive impact on, say, the Olympic level, right? Like that is a direct result of the X Games that ESPN basically created because someone there was really interested in it. And, you know, they created it because they were trying to get a young male audience yeah. and they were they, trying to go for that 18 to 25 specific, they can, exactly. They can create audience if they create the product, right? And I think Cheryl Reeve, who is the head coach of the Minnesota Lynx. She has been a huge critic of the media, both local and national, and how they cover women's sport. She responded to this article, and she had a line in there that's in all caps <laughs> that said, this is fact. The more women's sports are covered, the more popular and mainstream they will become. And I agree with her. I really do think that media has the ability to build up fan culture and create a shared experience for fans. We see them create, we see the media create stars all the time. Right. As individuals. And and I completely agree with it. And when the WNBA first got rolling and, and, and I was editing that website, I was amazed at how, I mean, at that time you had ESPN airing a weekly game, at least one. NBC was airing a game. Oh, wow. Lifetime actually had one too. So there were three games a week or three, for sure, three televised games a week. And sometimes they do double headers. Were their ratings amazing? No, but they increased for a few years there. And you were, you know, there was sort of a star quality about some of the basketball players like Cheryl Swoops and and Lisa Leslie um, at the beginning there. Yeah. You know, it really was at at about that 2001 time when things just started to change. Oh, that's interesting. So I hadn't even put all that together. The chronology of it, you know, just wrap up here, where do we go from here? So what would you prescribe as the way to start fixing this? Where I am, I'm trying to do what I can at the college level, you know, in, in teaching the value of, of making of, of how we make these decisions and 
how we create, you know, I, I use the poker example in class and you should just, you can see the light bulbs clicking overheads <laughs> when I, when I use that. And, you know, I mean, Quinnipiac universities, UConn had that 140 point first round game, but in their second round game, they only scored 71 points. And that was the Quinnipiac women's basketball team that held them. Yeah. We, we have a very successful women's basketball program, women's hockey, rugby, really successful programs. And they are enviable beats for the student media to have, you know, that the students yeah. that do that are, are sure. take great pride in it. So for, for me, I, I love that. And I think that we just have to, I mean, we have to be cognizant of these decisions that are made in in where resources go in media companies. Yeah. And I think that's what I got. <laughs> yeah. And I do think it matters in moments like this, you know, NBC for the first time ever, they spent more time showing women competing at the Olympics than they did yes. men, right? So this, the idea that it's just the market is not fair and is not true. NBC clearly doesn't believe it. And with one of the biggest sporting things that they do put a lot of money into. Yeah, I like that idea that it's really about being conscious of the choices that they're yeah. making. One of the other things that I, and in thinking about Lisk's article, you know, he'd mentioned that he has two daughters and every now and then, I'll, you know, they'll try to get to it. I think it was University of Missouri basketball game. You know, so many of the people that write these stories or, you know, the hot takes on UConn women's bad for the game, whatever, they jump in at this point when they haven't seen games all season. So the other prescriptive part of this is if you don't know what you're talking about, be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I see I see that over and over again. Like how many, you know, how many women's college basketball games have you been to this year? My goodness. I mean, if you want to see some great basketball, go watch the watch any SEC women's basketball game, any Big 10, any Pac-12 game. And these are games that are just so exciting and you get into the tournaments and the, the conference tournaments and that is great basketball with arenas that are just buzzing. You know, get into those communities and check it out. I mean, I think it's it's a product that is just so fun and everybody involved with it for the most part are engaging individuals who want to promote their sport and want to be part of the community. It's really fun. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Molly. It's really great to have you on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan. So free agency for the NFL is in full swing and in the wheelings and dealings and constant tweets from Schefter about what, who's going where and whatnot. One name remains conspicuously unsigned, and that is Colin Kaepernick. And I think that we've become so accustomed to him not being in the league and so accustomed to understanding why he's not in the league that it's almost like a a, a blip on the back of our radar. It's not really coming to the fore again, despite the fact that he's working out, despite the fact that he's retweeting videos of him working out and he's been working out and in in maintaining playing shape for the last two years, really. But he's not the only conspicuous free agent. Eric Reed, who you remember is one of the first people to join with Kaepernick to protest alongside of him, to be outspoken. He's also a free agent. And Devin McCourty of the New England Patriots, um, and also a member of the NFL Players Coalition, said on Friday that whether you're talking about Kaepernick or Eric Reed, all the guys in the coalition have said from the start the same thing, that these guys deserve a job. And we believe like everyone else, that the reason they don't have a job is because they're outspoken. So there's reverberations of the league's response to Kaepernick that we're still feeling today. Uh, Brenda? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know what else even sometimes there is to say about this. I saw, I wanted to ask you all if you had read a little bit about what did OJ say about oh, this? Oh, I've got it. I've got it right here. I think Colin, this is OJ Simpson, everybody. I think Colin made a mistake. I really appreciate what he was trying to say. I thought he made a bad choice in attacking the flag. The flag represents what we want America to be. OJ Simpson, everybody. <laughs> oh, boy. I just can't. <laughs> well, I mean, if anyone knows about making mistakes, I, God. I just... Who asked him? The Buffalo my, News. Uh, the Buffalo News, apparently. That's exactly of my course. point okay. was, like, how are these people actually qualified to be commenting on Kaepernick, who's done all of this amazing social justice work? I mean, why are they the people who should weigh in on... I, I mean, OJ. I don't know. Do you all think that Reed is the same case? I mean, I don't know that I know football well enough. I read all the stuff on Kaepernick that basically says, look, I mean, you can prove all of these quarterbacks have gotten picked up before him if you just know anything about football, regardless of politics. 
But what about Reed? I, I, I don't know as much about his on-field record. Do you all? I think he's considered one of the best safeties. Yeah, he's a Pro Bowl safety. Yeah, he's like, good. There's, there's no way that he's not qualified to be on an NFL roster. You know that's the that's the short story. Yeah, and he so Reed is backed off now. I mean, like he's given a quote saying that he doesn't, he probably won't be protesting during the anthem anymore. And he did say that it's because the narrative around it got so you know garbled, like that people mm-hmm. don't understand what it is they're actually working towards because they've focused so hard on the anthem thing itself rather than what it is that they want to draw attention to. But you know it's hard. And Eric had it. it mm, yeah, no, you go. I mean, it just it's hard not to read it within the larger context of him watching what happened to his friend Colin and now trying to get, you know, on another team. I don't I don't want to tell Eric Reed like what he should be doing. He's done a lot of good stuff here and he's clearly very smart and capable, but damn, the way that people have messed up all of this for these players just burns me. It's sad. That's exactly. sad to read. You know, mm-hmm. that he has to back and off Eric from his First Amendment rights for that. Precisely. And Eric had a, a, a very important tweet the other day, too, when somebody was basically saying, yeah, the GMs, whatnot. He retweeted and said, it's not the GMs. GMs are on board. It's the ownership, which makes me believe that there's been conversations with him from teams who are interested, but ultimately feel like their hands are tied because of ownership. Yeah. Wow. And then part of what the discussion was this week that Johnny Manziel, who disgracefully (laughs) left the NFL after, you know, lots of things, including reports of terrible domestic violence. He was, I'm going to try to get this right. There was a pro day somewhere in California, and he was the one throwing balls at the pro day, which is basically where scouts go to look at potential athletes for the NFL. And so immediately there were comparisons, like, why is this guy getting a chance, like, in front of scouts when Kaepernick can't get anything? And, you know, I have lots of feelings about Johnny Mansell and, and, and whatever, but to his credit, which is a really hard thing for me to say. And it was a twist that I did not mean, see yeah, to, to Mansell's credit, he took to Twitter to directly talk about these comparisons, and he said that he's tired of being compared to Kaepernick because Cap is doing amazing things right now, changing lives and donating millions of dollars. His impact off the field from a societal standpoint is legendary and straight admirable. He then said, quote, the fact, yeah. And then he said, the facts of the matter are the reason he's not being signed are non-football based. The guy took a team to the Super Bowl and continuously wreaked havoc on the NFC West and the league. Maybe he had a bad year two years ago, but he's not a bad player. And that's a fact. In my opinion, the guy still has a lot in the tank and it's not my place to say what he wants to do with his career. So people are right. They should be comparing these. You know, why does Manziel get the second chance here and Kaepernick doesn't? That's a that's a good question to be asking. Manziel has said that he agrees with everyone who thinks that that's weird, uh, that Cap doesn't have another chance. So, you know, man, when you're on the wrong side with Johnny Manziel, I don't <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> Where are we as a society? As this is an point? upside down world. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the other person who was on that, you know, New Yorker cover with Martin Luther King and Kaepernick was Michael mm-hmm. Bennett in this oh. illustration. And Michael Bennett also made news, you know, he's been one of the most consistently outspoken athletes as well, recently traded um, from Seattle or acquired by the Eagles, which also has its share of outspoken people like Chris Long and Malcolm Jenkins. So he joins the Eagles. This week, he was indicted from by a Texas court going back to uh, Super Bowl 51, which if you remember, the United, the the Patriots came back from 28 to 3 to win a Super Bowl. So we're talking about not this year's Super Bowl. We're talking about last year's Super Bowl was indicted because after that game, they alleged that he didn't listen to security officers, pushed past them, injuring a 66 year old paraplegic security officer at the stadium, gave this outrageous quote to a cop, which I don't understand any black person say like you know maybe i don't know but it seems on its face outrageous that he told a cop fuck you i could own this you know who i am and then marched on the field to find his brother martellus bennett who was paying for the patriots at the time to celebrate the win with him so this case has taken a very long time they indicted him and then we were treated to 
I don't even know. I don't have an adjective <laughs> to describe the despicable nature of this press conference. Jess? Yeah, welcome to Art Acevedo, who is now the Houston Police Department <laughs> Chief, who used to be the Austin Police Department Chief. We have lots of feelings about Art Acevedo here in Austin, Texas. But he's now at Houston, and he called Bennett morally corrupt, morally bankrupt, and said, quote, I think it's pretty pathetic that you'd put your hands on a 66-year-old paraplegic and treat them like they don't exist. I mean, he's been indicted on felony charges for this. And I just... I mean, for us, and I mean, part of it in, here in Texas is like watching the discussion around how law enforcement has talked about Michael Bennett this week versus how law enforcement here in Austin has talked about a 23-year-old white man who wreaked terror on this city and killed two people, injured a handful more with the bombs that he sent to people. And he was, you know, those bombs were an outcry of a challenged young man or whatever they said. And then on the flip side, you're getting Acevedo talking about Michael Bennett being morally bankrupt and morally corrupt. I just... You know, th- that's been very stark, that the relief of those two things up against each other. And knowing that Art Acevedo, the reason we have an interim police chief in Austin to say those things this week was because Art Acevedo left to go to Houston. So this is the, you know, this is the police department he left behind and was in charge of for a very long time. So I don't even know what to make of all this. I'm, you know. Well, you know, Michael's book is coming out yeah, next week. Things that make white people uncomfortable. Is the name of that book? Yeah, right. that, <laughs> Michael exactly. Bennett challenged <laughs> challenged white people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Well, you know, so the NFL continues to blubber its way through this moment on the NBA, where we've seen athletes and coaches continually being outspoken and not afraid of opinions and uplifting the opinions of, of athletes and coaches. We have seen this pattern continue this week. Horrible news out of Sacramento in the last week. A man named Stephen Clark, a black man, he was unarmed. He was shot 20 times in the back in his grandmother's backyard. He was only holding a cell phone. It's been, it's another just, it's horrible. Thousands of fans were unable to get into the arena to watch a Sacramento Kings game this week, though, because there were massive protests and they blocked the entrance. The police actually sent people home who were supposed to be able to get in to watch the game. Only 2,000 fans actually made it into the arena and the game was delayed by 20 minutes. And one of the things that was amazing, and it's like the bar so low that this is what is amazing, but it's still that the owner of the team... He took to the court afterwards and mic in hand and I like sort of held my breath when I watched the video because you just never know where it's coming from. And he actually took the time to acknowledge the horrific tragedy in our community is what he called it. And he said, on behalf of the players, the executives, the ownership and the entire Kings family, I first of all want to express our deepest sympathies for the family. He went on to say that we at the Kings recognize your people's ability to protest peacefully and we respect that. We here at the Kings recognize that we have a big platform. It's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. It's a responsibility that we take very seriously. And we stand with you, old, young, black, white, brown, and we are all united in our commitment. I mean, he didn't apologize for the protesting, which I just, he was like, no, this is, we understand why this happened tonight. And we stand with you as a community. And I just find that to be a remarkable thing for an owner of a professional team in any capacity to say, and to call the death of Stephen Clark a tragedy on on that, le- you know, he's right with the platform that he has. I just find that to be remarkable. And the difference, again, stark relief. <laughs> I, I use that now multiple times today, but it is really something that that is what happened this week and the same week when <clears throat> we're talking about Manziel and Kaepernick and Bennett. Why Why is the ed- – I mean, I know that there's basic reasons, but why are these things so different? Because the NFL and NBA have just come to take on totally different political feelings in the Trump era. Well, one of the reasons is that the N- NBA turns on uh, on its players, on the brand through the NBA is the players, right? You have smaller teams. You have, you know – highly visible folks. Yeah, they don't wear helmets. Whereas you can the, see their faces. Exactly. Yeah. And the NFL is much more like, I don't know, I want to say like a factory. You you have helmets on the head. The, the product is on the field, but part of that is not necessarily knowing who who everybody is. You might know the players on your team and obviously you have some superstars, but those are large teams. 
And, you know, there's a, there's a thing that they always say the NFL players are the players uh, who leave the biggest tips or, or, you know, spend the most in the club or whatnot, because they have, they have to really flash money because people don't know them without their helmets, with their helmets off. And so the NBA has long in, in a, a lot of spaces understood that its brand is tied to their players and the players have really led the way on this. Obviously pop, and Steve Kerr have been outspoken coaches, but it's really been the players who have been, you know, outspoken and and direct, showing the league, hey, this is what we're going to do. The league can't can't stomp down on that. You can look to something like the WNBA where the players tried to do the same thing, and in the WNBA they tried to assess fines, right, for them wearing black shirts in protest. And part of the reason, you know, they thought they could get away with that in the WNBA was because they don't have the same branding. Of course, when social media got a hold of it, it disrupted that and they they rescinded the the fine amount. But I think it points to that it's not necessarily that, you know, NBA leadership loves the outspokenness of its athletes, but they understand that their entire brand is tied to these athletes in the way that the NFL understands itself as a much larger corporation that is serving the interests of its ownership. I wonder, I would be so curious to to kind of read some data on fans too. I mean, I just, I, I just have the sense, especially with, you know, all kinds of the different fantasy leagues and stuff that the demographic that the NFL has maintained uh, is just politically different than the NBA. Yeah, that's certainly, it's just, it's, it's it. just politically more conservative than yeah. our basketball fans. That would make sense. I think there has been some work done on that. And I think that that is, you know, a really apt observation because that certainly goes into it as well. You know, it's a chicken and the egg, right? The Defense Department gives money for the and for the NFL to, you know, stage these kinds of patriotic things because it thinks it's sort of pleasing a certain segment of the population. But why didn't they invest that in the NBA? I mean, you know what I'm saying? So right. there's... Like, so that's kind of interesting. I don't know. It's just fascinating to to think about. But fandom, you know, the thing about fandom, because I think you're completely right about that, but also fandom has its limitations. If you remember, you know, I I think one of the (laughs) biggest fan bases for both like the WNBA and for women's soccer is the same kind of fan base or catering to the same fan base. And the WNBA has partnered with pride groups. Like they have pride night and yet they still tried to assess the fine. I think that the, you know, the NWSL is a great point in this where they actually passed a rule after Rapino Neal. Well, right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, go no, ahead. No, 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 no. I'm wait. I want you to finish because you're right about this. <laughs> the limits of fandom. <laughs> no, I like, I, no, go, go. Well, no, that was, I think that it's, it, but one of the things you allude to is that there's all of these things driving these disparate responses. I think fandom is definitely one of them. And then I think, you know, the, the way, the different sports think that they make money or position themselves. And then you have to look at leadership. So I think that there's, there's so many reasons why we get these disparate reactions. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking that the WNBA and the W and the NWSL to me has a big difference in terms of, I think the racial breakdown of their fans. And, and so that kind of is, is interesting as well to think about, but that was, it it wasn't like a great thought. It was just an observation that how that would play into their reaction to protests is it. And what protests? The reaction to the WNBAs and kind of, and kind of their more severe answer than one might expect. Well, no, I, but I think that you're exactly right on that. Like there's a reason why these are spaces in which they can have pride alliances and and whatnot and in that in that regard be very progressive and we know right that when it comes to race we're talking about a different kind of can of worms and i think that you're right to point out those those disparities in demographics around fandom and the players playing because i think that that is you know a reason why especially when you're trying to keep this quote unquote family image because the biggest revenue, the biggest kind of fan locations for a lot of these sports are somebody just told me this week, the the crowd is under seven or over 65, right? The marketing is like, this is like an intergenerational family event that we can go see women's basketball or, or soccer. And this idea that family friendly means that we're not talking about white supremacy, I think goes a long way. 
while we will continue to monitor this monitor this situation, we continue to say Stefan Clark's name and lift him up along with all the other victims of police brutality, gun violence. This is a kind of depressing note to end on, but this is where we are. It's time to burn some things. Jess, what are you burning this week? Yeah, well, it was hard to choose. And I want to give... There's so much to burn <laughs> yeah, this week. And I want to give a shout out to Lindsay, who's always doing amazing work at Think Progress. But she had a great piece about discrimination in sled hockey and another about discrimination in wrestling. And both of those stories are worthy of burn piles. And everyone should go check those out at Think Progress. But I chose to go with discrimination in tennis commentating. Because WTF, the BBC pays Martina Navratilova 10 times, 10 times less than they pay John McEnroe for tennis commentating. 10 times? 10 times less than they pay John McEnroe for tennis commentating during Wimbledon. And according to Navratilova, the BBC top brass told her to her face that they were making comparable amounts of money. And she only found out his salary when it was published last year in the media. I'm not only annoyed because of the like the actual pay disparity here but more because like Navratilova is so much better at commentating than She's John good, McEnroe right. right and so and then like beyond all of this Navratilova was a better player and, and like her like what she did during her career was so much better than what he did if we compare the stats Lindsay wrote a great piece about this for Think Progress and it's typically great in the fashion that Lindsay is. And she drops lots of wonderful comparisons between McEnroe and Navratilova throughout the entire thing, including that Martina, quote, won a combined 59 major titles in singles, doubles, and mixed doubles, while McEnroe had 17 combined major titles. Lindsay writes, quote, that means McEnroe, who won the Wimbledon singles title three times in his career, was paid 10 times as much as Navratilova, who won the Wimbledon singles title nine times in her career. It's really a disservice, more than anything, to the BBC listeners. ESPN has yet to hire Martina to do commentary, so I only get to hear her when she's on the Tennis Channel, and it's simply not enough for me. She's very good at really? this. Really? I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. I've never uh, heard of Why? I don't know, because they have Everett and Carrillo, and I guess they already are stacked. I don't know. But McEnroe, you know, on the other hand, I have to mute him all the time. I can barely stand listening to him, so... Burn all of that. Burn. Burn. Yeah, burn. Brenda, what are you burning? I'm burning something I, I didn't know that much about, and then I got all, all in a huff over this week. It's <laughs> 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 not uncommon for me. And so it's about Australian Rules Football League. And I don't really watch it, so I sat down and watched a few clips and read about it to understand the story a little bit better. The captain of the Western Bulldogs, Katie Brennan, received a two-game suspension. And this meant she was out of the final of their whole season. And it was controversial enough that she filed a complaint with the Australian Human Rights Commission. So I monitor human rights stuff, and this is one of those strange stories that pops up and brings all my worlds together. And evidently, she was suspended for what is called a swing tackle, which if you can imagine, involves a player being, quote, slung to the ground. (laughs) So it's like, so you get what the idea. And there are 12 different types of permissible tackles. So knowing all this, there are different tackles that have been deemed permissible informally between, between the men's and the women's side. And so basically, they're trying to get these women to, quote, unquote, behave themselves and do softer tackles. And and then the sole reason that that she didn't get the option of paying a fine is because they thought that they paid her too little for her to actually pay up the fine. And so they suspended her. They suspended her, which led them in, in these proceedings to figure that the average wage for a men's AFL player is 371,000 and the women receive 10,500. So wow. because wow. they don't wow. pay them enough, they can't find them. 
So, <laughs> like, so they have to suspend them. That so they suspend them. So and ridiculous. she's the captain. And this is the final. And, you know, women's leagues frequently don't even get to finish seasons because of the disorganization of the right. things. And here she is, you know. So I want to burn I want to burn these different standards, yeah. the pay disparity, and and trying to get women to behave in, in some dainty way in Australian Rules Football League, which just is not the place to do it. Burn. Burn. Burn it. Well, along those lines, I want to burn this Tongan rugby situation that you may have heard about. Essentially, there's an official letter sent out by the Ministry of Education to a Tonga high school that essentially boiled down to say girls shouldn't be playing sports, particularly rugby, because it goes against the young women's dignity in Tongan culture and traditions. This was met with immediate backlash by many people in Tonga, including women's rights activist Ofa Gutenbiliki-Liki, who said this, quote, takes us right back to the thinking that education is only academic and for girls to remain in that lane and sports is just for boys. It's taken us back from all the work we've done so far in trying to achieve and bring forward gender equality in Tonga. Furthermore, she went on to say that resting on ideas about tradition and culture was just a shield and that Tongan history is full of strong women uh, and strong women athletes, including a woman, uh, Tulua Futamoala, who is in New Zealand, who's uh, excelling in rugby, or Valerie Adams, who's a two-time Olympic champion, four-time world champion in shot put who competes for New Zealand, but is also half Tongan. She also took to Twitter to say, quote, Tongan women must be free to choose their own destiny and not be held back by misguided and stubborn misinterpretation. Now, after the backlash of this letter, they've kind of walked it back and said, well, no, 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 you know, we're dealing with a natural disaster in the Gulf. And this letter was going to schools to essentially say that kids can't be outside playing sports all day, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't really speak to why girls in particular were singled out to be the ones who needed to apparently put the sports down because they weren't being dainty enough or it would somehow fly in the face of cultural values. And so I think that the outrage is not just towards this letter, but overall, again, feeling like there's more barriers put up for girls and women who want to aspire to be elite athletes or who just want to play sports. And this kind of use of tradition and and culture to do it, to be the battering ram when many of these women are drawing from that tradition, are drawing from that culture, and that's what's propelling them into sport. And so I'm just over it and I'm burning it down. Burn. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to highlight some badass women of the week. We have a few honorable mentions. Kennedy Carter, whose last minute three last weekend lifted Texas A&M to the Sweet 16, and I was extra proud of watching her. She she played AAU with my little cousin, Alexis Morris, who I also want to shout out because I love her so much. And that was amazing to see. And also generally just want to shout out all the women playing in March Madness this year. It's amazing. You're all phenomenal. The games have been out of this world. And I'm looking forward to the continuation of the Elite Eight and the Final Four coming up next week. We also want to shout out English women's national team who's uh, achieved second place in the world soccer rankings. This is the highest they've ever been before. Congratulations to you. Paola Salazar, who's become the first woman president of a top divisions men's club in South America. She is in Colombia, and that is an amazing accomplishment. Kudos to you. We also want to shout out Buffalo head coach Felicia Leggett's Jack, whose team lost in the Sweet 16 round. But in a post game, she was asked a question about the lack of women color in coaching. And she responded by saying, I am saddened by it. I understand the problem. I know that the majority of women basketball players look like me. I think that young, if we really care about them as people, then we then they will have role models that look like them because we're going to play for years or whomever, and then they get an opportunity to go into this world, and they're not going to find anybody that looks like them, and they're going to have to figure out how to navigate it at a different level. I also want to shout out Kelsey Ankers, who was recently named head coach of North Valley High School's baseball team, and she's making history as the first woman ever to coach a high school baseball team in the entire state of Oregon, which is ridiculous, but 
Kudos to you, Kelsey. And drum roll, please. <laughs> well, that was like I a, like that. I had a rhythm yeah. to it. I know. You guys are woohoo. Our badass women of the week are actually some badass girls of the week. We wanted to celebrate and uplift Sam Fuentes, Alea Eastmond, Edna Chavez, Emma Gonzalez, Naomi Wadler, and the rest of the students who took to the streets to say never again in March for our lives. We were incredibly inspired by your actions, by your words. I particularly was so inspired by Naomi, who was 11 years old, and got up that stage to say, I want to remember the African-American girls who are often just statistics, who are cut down, and who don't make the front page news. There was an incredible commitment to intersectionality on display. Edna was from LA. Naomi's from Virginia. Youth of color from all over the country in particular, took the stage to share it with the Stoneham Douglas students. And they were just so fierce. The kids are all right. And they're propelling us to a better future. And we respect that and and honor that today. You are our badass girls of the week. So what's good, guys? What's good in your life, Brenda? Visitors is what's good in my life. Visitors are amazing. They're coming here in droves. Well, there's been three. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. And and we're getting yeah, two is. and we're getting two more. And you know, you have visitors and you spend too much money going out to restaurants you wouldn't otherwise and it's loads of fun and you do touristy things and you don't feel silly about it. So visitors are inspiring me to get out there and do all the the lists of things that are that I had made up to do in Argentina. And if it weren't for them, I feel like I would not be so motivated. So not only is their presence wonderful, but it's also gotten me, you know, to like strap up my boots and get get going. So visitors are wonderful. That's so fun. Although I never got an invitation. It to is obviously an open invitation. And we could record, <laughs> burn it all down in Buenos Aires, which would be amazing. And we could all do it together. So yeah. Goals. Life goals. goals. <laughs> well, I'm excited because uh, David Leonard is flying into State College today to give a wonderful talk this early this week on Playing Well White, his book that's out now. I'm really excited to welcome him. But I'm also really, 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 really excited because I just bought myself. Yay, you made it through your first year on the tenure track luggage. Yes. And <laughs> I am so excited. And I can't, it has like a charging port, which if you know me, oh, knows that my phone can never I stay charged. I can charge my phone on my luggage i'm amazing i won't tell you the brand because you know they don't they could sponsor the podcast (laughs) i know and i am so thrilled about this luggage but i also can't figure out if like it's a normal to be this hype around luggage b if my being hype around luggage is a sign of my impending 30s and i have like basically two and a half months until i hit 30 and so now i'm like freaking out because i'm like why (laughs) is this a sign that i'm getting old a or is it just that academia i will not respond to that being someone who is way older than you i'm not even gonna i'm i don't hear that right now old i'm getting older thank you that's better Good luggage. Anyways, my luggage is badass. That's awesome. I'm excited for you. Me too. Jess, what's going on with you? Yeah, so I did it. I went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal, (laughs) and it was amazing. Like, if if you like Harry Potter at all, you have to go there. It is really quite a thing. And I had, in two days, I had four butterbeers. They're really... (laughs) Did you you like the frozen, the hot, or the regular, the best? I never had the regular, because it was... I ended up having two frozen and two hot and I couldn't pick between them. They, it was. It's very, very good. Is it actual um, beer? No, no, oh. no. It's not. <laughs> oh. It's a very expensive, like cream soda. I know. We should oh. make some spike butter eh. beer and pedal it on the corner. <laughs> I know, but it is really good. It's like drinking ice cream. And then I just wanted to mention this one's kind of a downer, but it's amazing. There's a podcast I've been I binge listened to recently called Missing and Murdered. It's hosted by Connie Walker. It's a CBC podcast about missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. There's two seasons. They're in the they're towards the end of the second one now, and it's 
She's an amazing investigative journalist. The podcast is just riveting. And the stories and the history that she is talking about and the now that she's talking about is not covered enough. And uh, Americans can really take a lot of this stuff from this. There's a lot of parallels in Canada and the U.S. and the way that we have treated Indigenous and Native people. It's just a really great podcast, Missing and Murdered. And then I want to mention Nailed It, which is a Netflix show that we've been watching in my family, hosted by the hilarious Nicole Byer. It's this great thing where they bring in these people who do not know how to bake, and then they give them like perfect professional cakes that they have to then try to make on their own, and they are disasters. And when they reveal, (laughs) every time they reveal the disaster, they have have to say nailed it and it is just like i don't know we it's want- like the it's like the buzzfeed list of skulls of, of pin, pinterest nailed it moments yes, come to life I, is, i'm in for it i'm it is, and going it is to binge so that tonight funny like you will love it uh we have watched it multiple times already in this family and i will just the teaser is that the sixth and final episode the final cake they have to make is a trump cake so if you'd like to see disaster, disastrous Trump cakes, I, I highly recommend Nailed It. So those, that's what's good in, in my world. That's awesome. I also just want to send a happy birthday shout out to my niece, Nevea, who is two this weekend. Happy birthday, baby girl. That's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but it also can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so subscribe, rate, let us know how well we did or what we can improve on. Send us an email, send us a tweet. We'd love to hear from you. A special thank you to all those who support our Patreon campaign and all of our flamethrowers out there. You keep us going and doing this podcast. We love you so much. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down or on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. You can email us at Burn It All Down Pod at gmail.com. And of course, check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com. You'll find previous episodes, transcripts, a link to our Patreon. So subscribe, share, rate. And we'll see you next week. From Amira Rose, Davis, Jessica Luther, and Brenda Elsie, peace. And I'm sorry.